And our younger children can be dismissed to Children's Church. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline so that you can follow along. And uh, I've been told there's a lot of blanks today so that you won't be able to fall asleep. Or at least Butch won't be able to fall asleep. He was already asleep. He didn't even hear me. We are in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 30. You want to turn in your Bibles? You can follow along in the outline. John 5. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise." For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us about your son. Give us faith this morning that we might believe what you say. We ask that you would do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. The great question in John's gospel, on every page and in every line, is this question... Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What kind of person is he? Now, when we come to the second part of John's gospel, 
um, from chapter 13 on, we go into the last week of Jesus' life, and it's immersed in all the words that he'll be speaking to his disciples. But here in the first half, John has been selecting stories and miracles out of the life of Christ in order to bring this question before us as he writes, who is Jesus? There could hardly be a more important question. Who is Jesus? What kind of man was he? What kind of claims did he make? Who in the world or out of the world is Jesus Christ? You know, we just finished the Christmas season. And we sang all those beautiful Christmas carols. And you love them not because of the sentimentality uh, that's associated with them, but hopefully you love them because they speak of Jesus, because they take you with wonder and astonishment and awe and worship like the shepherds on that hillside in Bethlehem, like the wise men that came from the east bearing gifts. They bring you to the feet of the baby Jesus Asking the question, what child is this? I started to laugh because uh, Nathaniel has, we have a nativity scene in our house, and they're kind of big figures. And the baby Jesus is probably about this big, and he calls him the baby Jebus. And uh, we don't have all the letters down yet. But... um, But that's what happens. You come to the feet of the baby Jesus. And if you remember the carol, what child is this? What's the answer? This is Christ the Lord. It says, who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? This this is Christ the King. And still today, that's the question that John's answering. Who is this? Who is Jesus? And the story in the first part of John chapter 5 was the healing of this paralytic man. He was unable to go into the waters by himself whenever he got into those waters at the pool of Bethesda. If you got in there first after they were stirred, then you were healed. And he'd been there 38 years and trying to get in, and he couldn't get in. And you can go back to hear last week's sermon or read it and get all the details on that. But Jesus performs a miracle in healing this man, not by putting him in the water, but by saying to him, take up your bed and walk. And he'd been in that condition for 38 years. But now as he's walking around Jerusalem, carrying his mat underneath his arm, the only thing that the Pharisees have on their mind was that Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. And they had written a book on Sabbath keeping, in which it said, thou shalt not pick up thy bed and walk on the Sabbath. And so a problem arises as a result of that incident. And what they're saying to Jesus is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are coming from the north, as he did, down to southern Jerusalem? Perhaps you understand the sensitivities of a northerner coming south and telling religious people what to do. (laughs) Of course, obviously, you understand I mean, who did he think he was to come down to Jerusalem and upset the traditions that have kept this city together for centuries? And they're on him like a pack of hounds. And our text says they desire to kill him. And they've confronted Jesus and they ask him a series of questions. And we don't get the questions, but we get the answers. 
and they get the answers, but they're not going to get the answers they want. So let's look at what Jesus says in response to them, what it means, and how they react to him. We start by seeing that Jesus doesn't hesitate to defend himself by declaring that the Son does what the Father does. The Son does what the Father does. Verse 16 tells us, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Look at that response, because that's what takes us into the rest of chapter 5. First, we need to see what is the truth about Jesus. And the second thing, what is the implications of this testimony of Jesus? And the first thing, what is the truth about Jesus? That's the unspoken question behind all of chapter 5. Who do you think you are? Because Jesus has said, my father is working until now, and I am working. He's saying, I have a unique relationship with my heavenly father, so unique that I call him my father. And they recognize that to be a claim by Jesus to be the son of God, sharing in the very privileges and prerogatives of God. He's claiming a unique relationship to God, and he's claiming to uh, share the exclusive prerogatives of God himself. My father is working until now, and I am working. My father, who created the world, my father, who gave us the Sabbath day, my father, who sustains us and blesses life even on the Sabbath day, and since I am his son, I am only doing what my father's been doing. And they get the message. And so they want to persecute Jesus. They want to destroy him. Verse 18 that is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And the whole of the rest of the passage surrounds this issue. Who is Jesus and who does Jesus think he is? He started with a bold statement. My father is working until now and I am working. And he makes several points by this statement. The first one is they both work. That's the first blank there in your outline. They both work. Jesus calls God his father. The individual way that Jesus spoke of God as his own father is a display of this special father-son relationship which Jesus was claiming as his own. And to the Jews, this was blasphemy. This is a statement they're just not prepared to accept. Secondly, because God's always at work upholding his creation by his decrees of providence, even on the Sabbath, so too Christ as the Son of God is always at work doing the same things the Father did. The Father and Son are at work together. And Jesus was insisting that whatever justified God's work also justified his work. And this further infuriated the Jews. They had no problem accepting the fact that God the Father was active on the Sabbath, but they couldn't accept Jesus saying that it's okay for him too. For anyone who could do what the Father does must be as great as the Father, as divine as the Father. And this would mean that Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. And to be equal with God is the same as claiming to be God. And again, to the Jews, this would be considered blasphemous. 
Later on in, in John chapter 10, we'll see that they try to stone Jesus to death for this very same claim. There's only one problem with their reaction to Jesus. You see, their understanding of what he was saying was fine. They'd understood him perfectly. He was, in fact, making all these claims. They just didn't believe that what he said was the truth. But Jesus doesn't stop there as though he hadn't already given them enough ammunition to use against him. He goes on to make a second claim about his relationship with the Father that they both love. They both love. Look at verses 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Verse 20 explains how the Son can do whatever the Father does. It's because the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Verse 19 said the Son can only do what he sees the Father doing, and verse 20 says the Father shows the Son what he does. Those two verses go together. And the love of the Father for the Son is displayed in this continuous disclosure to the Son of all that the Father does. And the love of the Son for the Father is displayed in the Son's perfect obedience, which will eventually result in in his sacrificial death on the cross. Now, if it's true that the Father loves the Son, it's no less true that the Son loves the Father. This is continually repeated in the Gospel of John. The love between God the Father and God the Son. It's mentioned in chapters 1, 3, 5, uh, 10, 11, 14, 15, 17, and 21. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And the verb loves uh, there indicates continuous action. The Father never stops. He never ceases to love the Son. It's ongoing. And you have to stop and wonder, what would happen in the life of the church if the works you seek to do were the works of the Father? rather than your own works, especially if those works grew out of your intimate, loving relationship with God instead of the planning of your own minds and your own selfish hearts. There would be little power in any work uh, that you do where the source of the service is yourself. But when the source of your service is your relationship with God, then there's no limit to the power he provides to accomplish those works. But Jesus doesn't even stop there. He comes out with another bolder declaration about his relationship with God the Father. He goes on to claim they both give life. They both give life. He says, verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives him life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Well, now he's really offending the religious leaders. They believe life was the gift of the Father exclusively, and there's no way that they could accept that Jesus was doing what God was doing. It's true whether they believe it or not, and Jesus doesn't hesitate to confront them with it. And moreover, Jesus gives life here and now. 
Just as the Father takes dead bodies and raises them to new life, so the Son is able to take those who are spiritually dead and give them new spiritual life. And that's why he told Nicodemus back in chapter 3, must be born again. And why he said in John 3, verses 14 through 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that's why he told the woman at the well in, uh, in John 4 that she needed living water. John 4:14. 4, Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And why he showed his power by healing the official son in Capernaum and the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. It's one of the great themes of the Gospel of John. Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly and people who ignore what jesus is saying are spiritually dead people who have no faith in christ as their lord and savior aren't really living at all they may go through their motions of their earthly existence but it's so impoverished that compared to the life christ gives the bible says they're dead They lack the peace of God. They don't know divine forgiveness. They've had no experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. They're strangers to Jesus. They have no loving relationship with him. They don't enjoy fellowship with other believers. Life means so many things of which they have no knowledge. And it's a kind of existence which Jesus calls death. It's shallow and empty. They're so limited by their sin and so completely unable to be free of their sin, they're in a constant state of spiritual death. Now, of course, there may be people in the church, this church, any church, who are saying, wait a minute, you know, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm not experiencing all that stuff. I don't really know Jesus, at least not in the way you're talking about. Well, If not, why not? Is it simply a lack of spiritual maturity or is it a lack of spiritual life? Hard questions, I know, but you got to ask them. Are you or am I as spiritually mature or as spiritually alive as we think we are? See, the Apostle John leaves no middle ground. Chapter 3 says people either believe in the Son of God or they don't believe. And that's what the book of John is all about, believing. John writes that people either love the light or they hate it. In John 5, he says either have eternal life or they're spiritually dead. In John 8, he says they're either children of God or children of the devil. In John 14, he says either obey Christ or disobey Christ. For the apostle John, there's only two options. Either a person is a follower of Christ or a person is against Christ. And it's both an invitation and a challenge to each one of us. Accept new life in Christ or remain dead in your sins. And ultimately, it's just that simple. Well, for the religious leaders who are hearing this, it's all gotten to be too much. They know that if Jesus is claiming to be equal with God the Father, to be God himself, then that would mean they're both the same. Or as we would say in Theological words, they're both one substance. That's the blank there. They're both one substance. Now, that's one of the great truths 
of the Christian faith. Many of the early church fathers were persecuted and exiled and even killed over this claim. One of the great theological debates of the early church was over whether Jesus was the same substance, and the Greek word is homoousios, same substance with the Father, or just a similar substance, homoiousios. If Jesus was not one substance with the Father, then he couldn't be fully God, and he couldn't have taken the punishment for our sins on the cross. And the only difference between those two Greek words is one letter, the letter I, the Greek letter iota. So the next time you hear the phrase, it doesn't matter one iota, remember that it does matter. For Jesus is one substance with the Father. And if all that wasn't enough to send the legalists over the edge, Jesus wraps up talking about his relationship with the Father by saying, the Son judges as the Father judges. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, if you could pick any other point to send the religious leaders into hysterics, this would be it. They have long recognized that God was, as Genesis 18 said, the judge of all the earth. But for Jesus to make yet another claim that he could do what God could do was getting to be more than they can handle. However, Jesus insists that the office of judge, both in the present and at the last day, has been entrusted to him by God. And thus he declares the Son is uh, not only one with the Father in activity, but also that along with the Father, they're both to be honored. They're both to be honored. Therefore, to honor the Son is to honor the Father. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, I found this fascinating. I've read this, I don't know, a hundred times or so, and, and, but it really jumped out at me. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And our passage here in John 5 emphasizes the unity of the Father and the Son. So to honor one is to honor the other, and to dishonor one is to dishonor the other. Therefore, any, quote, religious people who say they believe in God but deny Christ, in reality have neither the Father nor the Son. Because apart from Christ, you cannot know the Father. Apart from Christ, you cannot worship the Father. Apart from Christ, you cannot serve the Father. Jesus himself said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because of, we, because of that, we see they're both to be believed. They're both to be believed. Look at verse 24. Notice there, Jesus doesn't say, whoever hears my word and believes it. 
And he doesn't say whoever hears the word of God and believes it, but he said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The Father and Son are so much a unity that Jesus speaks of hearing what he says and believing the Father. In other words, what he says is what the Father says. And he's talking about believing what God says, really believing it with all of our hearts and minds. Now, if we really believe what God says is true, then we'll trust him. And that's the point, to believe what God says and to trust him. The two go together. If you believe and trust, then you'll have eternal life now. Not that one day you'll have eternal life, but that as a believer, you have it right away. You're no longer spiritually dead, but if you've crossed over from death to life. To hear his word and believe means salvation. To reject his word in disbelief means condemnation. As Jesus would later say in John chapter 12, which was our responsive reading this morning, it said there, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So they're both to be honored, and they're both to be believed. And because we're among those who have been called to believe, Jesus says he'll call us to rise again. He'll call us to rise again. And he's calling us now to rise again then. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The same word of life that Jesus will speak at the last day is heard now. The voice is the same voice. The message is the same message. It's to hear and believe not only in God the Father, but also in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the words and deeds of the Son are the words and deeds of the Father, so faith placed in the Son is faith placed in the Father who sent him. And just as the voice of the Son is powerful enough to generate spiritual life now, it will be powerful enough to call forth the dead then. And at that time, he'll judge all our deeds. He'll judge all our deeds. The Apostle John draws a close connection between those who experience spiritual life now and those who will rise to live at the last day. It's precisely they who enjoy eternal life now by faith in Jesus and in the one who sent him, it is they whom Jesus will raise to life at the last day. Look at the last part of that section, starting at verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
Those who have done good, John 5.29, are those who have come to the light of Christ. As John 3.21 says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. So may be clearly seen his deeds have been carried out in God. On the other side, those who have done evil are those who, according to John 3.19, where it says this is the judgment, light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Those who are raised to life are receiving the confirmation of the eternal life and freedom from sin they already enjoy through faith in Christ. And those who are raised to judgment have in fact been condemned already because of their failure to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And John 6.29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him, God the Son, whom he, God the Father, has sent. The deeds John is saying that we'll be judged on are first and foremost whether or not we believe and obey Jesus Christ. The works of God are defined as a single work, to believe in Jesus. And if we accept this definition, we see that those whose deeds were evil would be those who rejected Jesus, and those whose deeds were good would be those who received Jesus One's attitude towards Jesus, one's relationship with Jesus becomes the central criterion of whether one is good or evil. And yet those qualities that make Christ so precious to those of us who believe are the very qualities that make him frightening to those who don't believe. At the last day, unbelievers will find themselves looking into the face of one to whom they are completely accountable and nothing will slip by him. And the same qualities that make Jesus a comfort for believers will make him an awesome terror to the lost. They have not faced the obvious and crucial fact that the Lord Jesus over and over again warned us against trusting in our own righteousness at the judgment of God. Human beings are profoundly sinful, often and in every way breaking the commandments of God. They are not good and they do not do good, except to a trivial degree in comparison with the standards against which they're going to be judged at the last day. They do not love God with all their hearts, do not love their neighbors as themselves. And in a thousand ways... They not only have a far higher view of themselves than God does, they have a far higher view of themselves than anyone else does. And it's only someone who judges himself by his own standards who can read John 5.29 without fear. But as unsurprising as verse 29 is to unbelievers who have no real understanding of the the depth and the width of human sin and moral failure. It is surprising, even um, unsettling, for Christians to hear the Lord say what he says there about the last judgment. Christians know they're sinners, profoundly, thoroughly, inexcusably sinners. They know they could never stand in God's judgment if left to themselves. 
They know that if their lives are judged against God's law, they must be condemned. They have no hope of acquittal, of reward, of entrance in eternal life. And it's precisely this knowledge about themselves that made them Christians in the first place. It was to obtain the forgiveness of those sins, to obtain a righteousness that would avail in the judgment of God that they turned to Jesus Christ and trusted themselves to him. Him, and the Bible says, he who knew no sin had become sin for them, that they might become the righteousness of God in Christ. They recognize the wages of sin is death, but they come joyfully to know that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So they don't stand before God at the judgment in their own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. And so as Christians, we've come to see ourselves as sinners and yet at the same time as objects of God's love. We are those for whom Christ died and we receive him as Lord and Savior by faith. But faith doesn't leave us where we are. We don't continue in our sins as though nothing has happened. We're to repent and turn away from evil. We're to live in the strength that God supplies. J. Hudson Taylor, one of the great uh, missionaries, one of the first missionaries to China, had a motto which I love. And his motto was, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And what he's saying is that our new life in Christ should serve as evidence to the world around us of God's grace. The lives we live are proof of the faith we profess. Finally, we see in verse 30 that the son acts to please the Father. We won't understand what Jesus' ministry was all about unless we see that it was the Father's work that he was doing. Verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He came to do the Father's will and the Father's work in the Father's way, and he never lacked the Father's supply. He always acted in closest connection with the Father. Jesus' will is set against doing anything other than what the Father wills. And his unqualified commitment not to please himself but to please his Father guarantees that all he says and that all he does is in complete accordance with the Father's will. His aim throughout his entire life was to do the will of his Father. And so thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven was not just Jesus' prayer. It was his goal, his purpose in life. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, if you read them in the order in which they were written, not in the order in which they were published, um, the end of C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, Aslan, tells uh, Peter, Edmund, and Lucy that there's been a railroad accident and that they are dead. And to quote there, it says, And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them... It was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one 
of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The same is true for us if we believe in Christ as our Savior. The authority of the voice of Christ will call us forth to a new life of which life on earth is only the introduction. Christ has made this claim and he speaks truth. Think about that. We need to pray.